Hi, friends. Uh, welcome back. It is, man, can you believe it? It is almost the end of July. I just think that is so wild. This summer is just flying by. Um, probably a huge part of that is because, guys, we have moved. My family has moved for the fifth time in under two years, which is fairly intense. Um, we appreciate your prayers for all of us as we are finally um, settling into a new space. But that is kind of surreal after we have been quite nomadic um, for some time. And even before the past two years, um, living overseas, knowing that that was probably not our permanent home, it has just been you know, an ongoing wild adventure. And um, I think we are all tired and all in need of some stability, um, which of course is not necessarily provided by the location in which you are um, or the promise of permanency, but that definitely can go a long way towards helping. Um, That's what we were hoping, at least in our lives. So um, appreciate your (laughs) prayers for us if you think of us. Um, It is kind of interesting that while we have remained in the same country, we are in a very unique part of that country, and it is actually remarkably different from where we had been living for the past year. Ironically, um, some of where we are now actually reminds me a lot of New Zealand. Um, The depth of green here, um, not just the fact that everything is much more lush and much more green, but also the variety of greens that there can be in one place um, is very reminiscent of New Zealand. And I really appreciate that. Um, The smaller city, the juxtaposition in that city of wealth and poverty, even on the same hillside, um, and the way that that occurs really reminds me of New Zealand. Um, It's been quite poignant to be here um, and to be settling into a place that reminds us of New Zealand, but then on the other hand is also decidedly really American, right? There's a wide swath of libertarian politics here. Um, The ongoing uh, obsession with firearms that I still don't quite understand. Um, Lots of plastic waste, which really stresses me out was talking with another expat recently and was she brought it up and I was like oh my goodness it stresses you out too I don't know what to do um these are the ways that you know you have lived overseas so (laughs) it's kind of a funny um random thing to be fixated on but that I think is how you know you have moved from one culture to another and they treat things very differently at times um and then of course there are things which are really unique to this specific part of the United States. Uh, There's a real fierce sense of pride about the location, but that is also coupled with this kind of odd shame and even sometimes looking down on the location or um, on oneself and one's family. I actually had a woman say to me that nobody moves here, that it's a hole in the wall, and she asked why in the world would we have come here. Um, We talked about that a little bit, and then I actually told her I'd finally had a good cup of coffee here, of all places. It was probably the best cup of coffee I have had since leaving New Zealand. And she laughed and made some comment about how it's because you finally got some good mountain coffee. which I think is definitely true, but it was just interesting how that was juxtaposed, that fierce sense of pride. Um, There's a real beauty in how proud people are of their locale here. And yet um, she was like, this is a hole in the wall. Why would you move here? So there's a real sense of, you know, sorrow about some of the suffering and strife that has really accompanied this part of America um, over the last century and probably even uh, before that as well. And a lot of it being economic um, suffering and strife. Um, But then, you know, this is a place that 
is sometimes the butt of a lot of jokes in the United States. Um, and it has been really interesting to see that in like the self-identity of the people here, being both proud, but also um, this sort of mixture of shame in there as well. To be honest, um, after coming from large cities out west in the United States and also after living abroad, I'm personally not always sure where I'm going to fit here, Um, but the people are wildly and even uncomfortably friendly, um, and I'm really, really grateful to be here. I'm really, really glad for my family to be here as well. Um, Love having a huge front porch um, amidst trees and friendly neighbors, and I'm just really excited for all of the stories that are going to unfold in this 120-something year old house, um, which already is burgeoning with its own set of stories and its own history. And I'm excited to add to that. Guys, if only you could be here with me, maybe someday we can figure that out. Anyway, all of that shifting and moving in the last few weeks of being here and observing the place really has me thinking a lot about today's topic that we're going to discuss, which is human culture. This is a really significant topic in today's world as we are still grappling with things like racism and the after effects of colonialism um, and all of the different things that that brings up and that in, in, you know deals with in terms of culture. I think sometimes we like to think that these are distant events in the past, um, but I think the last several years have made it really obvious that these are not distant things, um, that these still have impacts on us, uh, and that these are things that we still have to grapple with and wrestle through. I think some of that has been, you know, almost visceral in the way that we have been reminded of it, right? It's been really challenging for us to see that. Um, But we have to find a way forward, um, I think, especially in the United States. Um, But there are other places in the world also where this is a real issue. Um, As we deal with certain um, issues of systemic um, and cultural sins, um, because, right, culture and systems are made by people, and so there is evil and sin in them at times, and we have to be wrestling through that. So um, sometimes I think the reaction is to avoid culture, um, to pretend like distinct cultures don't exist, or to be what we hear a lot about these days as being colorblind. Um, But to be honest, I think that's the wrong approach. For one, we really can't pretend that we don't each have a unique culture, right? We all have a culture uh, that is familial, the way in which we grew up, the particular things that it, it means to be one of our family, right? Some of those are good. Some of those are negative. Um, we also have ethnic and national cultures, right? The things um, that shape us, whether that's in school or that's in national celebrations or those are the holidays that we celebrate. We all have these things um, that have shaped and formed us and give us our way of looking out onto the world. And we can't avoid that. We can't pretend that it doesn't exist. That would be to be lying to ourselves. And we can't pretend that the people down the streets don't have a different set of cultural traditions, right? And we don't really need to pretend that this isn't true. This is one of the gifts of being in the image of God. It is how God created us, is to be um, developers and growers of culture, right? It's to make something with what it means to be human. Um, It's to make things out of our family, right? So my family has very specific kinds of traditions around different holidays. That's what it means to be us. And that's a a gift that God has given us. And so it's something that is worth celebrating and worth honoring. 
But let's think about that a little bit more thoroughly. Um, This week, I'm going to be drawing pretty heavily from a book um, by an Australian theologian named Charles Sherlock, um, and the book is called The Doctrine of Humanity. Um, And he canvases a whole bunch of different issues related to being human um, and how we can grapple with that as Christians. Um, But he has some really helpful stuff on culture. So I'm going to reference him a bit throughout this episode. So what does it mean to talk about culture? What are we even referencing there? Sherlock calls human culture the sum total of all human interactions in a particular setting. (laughs) That's broad. He means that a particular culture is everything that humans do in specific places and ways. So what might be an example? Well, in New Zealand, um, when we were at church, no one raised their hands while singing. You might say it just wasn't the dumb thing. Here at church in America, I see a lot more of that kind of emotive expression. Um, And it might be easy then to extrapolate from that and suggest that Kiwis are less emotional, or at the very least, they're less emotive, right? But that's not true. It's just that their emotions are expressed in a different manner than here in the U.S. And in fact, the assumption that one set of actions connotes a particular belief or feeling is itself a cultural expression or paradigm because it's something that we assume and it's something we take for granted. All right. So there are two things going on there with that example. Culture is both the actions, right? Raising our hands in worship or not raising our hands in worship and also the assumptions that we make, the interpretations we make around those actions, right? Um, Another example might be when we went to um, an All Blacks rugby game, which was basically a dream come true for me. You could hear all of the calls being made on the pitch, right? We could hear what the team was saying um, to one another. If you went to an American football game, that would not be the case because people are raucous and shouting and they're... um, they're very verbose and with their enthusiasm, right? There's, it's a loud kind of enthusiasm. Whereas in New Zealand, people were so enthusiastic that they were sitting in perfect silence. <laughs> and you could hear everything happening on that pitch because people are so focused. And then, you know, when there's a try, everyone is really excited and celebrates. But in the midst of individual plays, that enthusiasm is channeled in a different way than it's channeled in America, right? So again, you have there the set of actions in a particular location and also the interpretation of that. Some people might be like, but they're so quiet. They're bored. They're not interested. But then other people might say to the Americans, but you're so loud. You're not paying attention. You're not interested, So it's both the actions and the interpretation. And it's there are things in our culture that we simply assume and take for granted. It's like a fish being in water, right? You don't recognize the water you're swimming in. You just assume that this is how it is. This is what reality is. And it can be really hard for us to step outside um, and uh, understand or see the uh, kind of details of our own culture. One easy way of doing that is traveling. Um, And of course, that's not necessarily possible for everyone, but that is, I think, a really helpful way of recognizing uh, the intricacies and the nuances of our own culture versus another person's culture, because it's like being that fish and suddenly being out of water. 
which of course can be very difficult. Throughout scripture, of course, we also see a lot of references to culture. For instance, the various gods that are mentioned in the Old Testament um, and the ways in which people worship them or act around um, celebrations or don't act around celebrations. In the New Testament, there um, are discussions in Paul's letters about allowing for eating meat, sacrificed to idols. Those are cultural things, right? The very fact that the meat is being sacrificed to an idol, who those idols are, what is happening there, is it okay for us to eat it, in what situations is it not okay for us to eat that meat, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all cultural references. And it can be hard sometimes when we're reading that and to see it as being kind of well, quite foreign, right? Um, We don't know all of the gods in the Old Testament. They are not familiar to us in the 21st century. Um, And so sometimes it can be a bit challenging to read those and to properly understand what's going on. But they are cultural references from which we can extrapolate meaning and guidance, even for today. The text, like say, is in one sense sort of culturally bound, right? Because it's written to a particular people in a particular time and setting and place. Um, But we know because of the power of the Holy Spirit and the reality that the word speaks to us of God and it is living and active, that the meaning of the text is never restricted to only that time and location. This doesn't mean we have a free-for-all with the text, but it does mean that Paul in speaking about sacrificing meat to idols and whether or not we can eat it, that has some significant meaning for us today and some authority over our lives today as well. So there are ways in which we can read the text and see, here's the culture. How does that now speak to my culture? There are also cultures which are condemned in scripture and also aspects of culture which God restricts from his people and says are off limits. Um, I think it's important to note that in scripture, no single culture is ever regarded as being ultimate or final. And that is true even in Israel, where the Jewish belief system was, right? And where God made his presence and made his home with his people. But that belief system evolved and had to adapt according to what was happening in the lives of the Jewish people and the world around them. So the culture of the desert wanderers, right, under Moses and under Joshua, that's different from the culture of the exiles in Babylon, which is also different from the culture of the Jews living under the peace and the wealth and the prosperity of Solomon. So two things should really be obvious from this point. One, we can find a cultural home as God's people anywhere we end up geographically, though we may at times be living over or against the dominant culture in which we find ourselves. Second, there's really no culture which is the perfect home for the gospel. In fact, every culture is tainted by sin and therefore will have aspects which are at odds with the gospel. Sherlock points out that the New Testament writers could see the benefits of Rome, but they could also characterize her as Babylon, the great oppressor. We must remember that our culture, however seemingly good, is not perfect, and it has undertones which are antithetical to the gospel, whether we're in Essex Junction, Vermont, or Kigali, Rwanda. It's important to be aware of these things and make sure that we are allied with the gospel, not a form of Christian nationalism, wherever we might be. One important way of recognizing this, of seeing the ways in which our culture falls short of the gospel or needs to be um, reworked in light of the gospel, is to be culturally aware 
And I'm not saying this because it's apropos in today's society. I grew up as a missionary kid, so this idea is pretty deeply ingrained in my psyche. But let me give you an example. At our new church where we've just moved to, we don't pass offering baskets or plates. Instead, there's a uh, basket on a sort of pedestal or lectern almost. It's not a lectern. It's more like a pedestal up at the front of the sanctuary. And we are invited to carry up our offerings and to put them into that basket. Not every week, but occasionally our rector will explain why, will explain, excuse me, why we do things that way. And he has noted that we learned this from our brothers and sisters in Rwanda. And the point is that we come, we bring our offerings forward, just like you would bring your first fruits forward in ancient Israel. And you would bring them and you would lay them at the feet of the altar, right? You would lay them at God's feet. And that's what we're doing. We're bringing them up towards the chancel where the table is, where we meet with Christ in communion. And we are putting them in the basket. We're figuratively and literally laying them at his feet. And then we walk back to our seats And then when we come forward in a few minutes to receive communion, we are receiving that um, experience, that expression of grace, that presence of Christ with open hands that are unencumbered by our finances, by our sin, etc., right? We've done the confession verbally, and now we have returned to God all that is His. And we've said, I'm coming to you empty-handed, Because ultimately, that's how I have to come to God every week, right? That's what this demonstrates. And it's not something that we learned in America. That's something that our church learned from Rwandan brothers and sisters. And guys, how good is that? How instructive for our faith and for our understanding what it means to encounter God at the table and to receive His grace, not because of anything we've done, but we come with empty hands, right? We have the opportunity in the church to be culturally aware as we learn from brothers and sisters who are across the world, across time, right? And we learn from their wisdom and we can adopt things that are instructive and formative for us in our understanding of the gospel. This kind of perspective, I think, also offers us a keen insight into, you know, a term or something, a concept like multiculturalism. I think at times we might fear that idea because maybe it sounds like relativizing or a kind of erasure of all things absolute, including truth. And certainly there are people who advocate for it that they, that might be the end goal. But I don't think that we as Christians need to see it that way. We can and should be honest regarding our cultural differences. Where appropriate, we ought to celebrate those distinctives. Say, look at the good ways in which God molds and forms different people and the ways that we show one another who God is, like a prism that has many sides. And then I think when we celebrate those distinctives, we can learn from one another and adopt those things, or at least honor those things which correspond to and honor the gospel. And again, I want to be clear. I'm not talking about something like cultural appropriation. I think that's a real careful line for us to tread. I'm talking about saying something like, you have a beautiful insight and I would like to adopt that position. I would like to see things from your point of view. For instance, if you were in New Testament studies, you would hear the phrase fictive kinship pretty regularly, especially when talking about the epistolary literature, right, where Paul um, and John and Jude and Peter and James are writing back and forth to the different churches. There's this idea of fictive 
kinship. It's that we are called to treat one another's family, even when that's not biological. So we have a fictive kinship in the church. Um, And this was actually something that you could even see in the broader culture in different kind of venues. And it's an important part of being in the church. It's one which Westerners really need to work on, in my experience. When I went to do my PhD, I understood that idea. I understood it conceptually. But then when we lived in New Zealand, I began to understand it on a whole new level. And this came as my family watched and observed different things in Maori culture. And we heard the way that they talked about family and iwi and society. So I'm not going to go and name my children something in te reo, the language of the Maori people, right? I think that would be something like cultural appropriation. But instead, we do still talk about whanau, which is a word that means family, but which is used in the Te Reo liturgy in New Zealand to reference the church. It has a much broader application than just biological family. It can kind of reference this idea of fictive kinship. So that's not cultural appropriation. That was something we saw in Maori culture, and we were like, you have a key insight here, and we're hearing it in our liturgy at church, and that's an idea we want to adopt and raise our children with. So then I want to ask you, what ways can you see of doing similar things like that? How can you learn from others and implement their perspectives? Maybe there's something from your spouse or your flatmate or even the children in your Sunday school classroom. I mean, let's be real. Children have their own kind of culture, and adults can really stand to learn from them. Even Jesus points that out in the Gospels, that there's a lot to be learned from children. Finally, I think the other aspect of culture is to think about the Gospel message excuse me, in culturally appropriate ways. Sherlock offers a few examples in his text, and I want to repeat one of those and then add one of my own to kind of illustrate this idea. Basically, he's talking about what does it look like to enculturate the gospel, to put the gospel in the language of the people with who we are working. He references uh, Guy Fawkes Night in November in England and in the broader Commonwealth. There are some people in New Zealand who celebrated Guy Fawkes Night. Um, There's a huge use of fireworks on the 5th of November. It's a celebration that the enemies of Protestantism were defeated, uh, among other things. But in a country like Taiwan, we might want to avoid fireworks because of the historical association with scaring away evil spirits, right? So we are listening to the language and the experiences of the people and treating the gospel appropriately. When I went to Russia as a young adult, I learned that alcoholism is a major cause of death, especially for Russian men. And I learned that in response to this struggle, most people in the church are teetotalers, or if they do drink, it's in very small amounts and only on very special occasions. This was really different for me coming from Colorado, where drinking craft brews was a big part of the culture, and alcoholism isn't nearly such a problem for the populace. And I can see this is something that the church is doing to hear what is true freedom for our people. It's freedom from alcoholism. It's freedom from the fears and anxieties that drive us towards alcoholism. And so we are going to love one another by not having alcohol, right? And that wasn't an issue that was happening in Denver. So we didn't have to enculturate the gospel in that particular way. When we're looking to bring the gospel to a particular place, we need to listen to that culture, whether that is a suburban culture, you know, it's our neighbors or it's the city in which we live, right? If we're like downtown or it's the broader culture of our nation as a whole, um, what are the needs? 
What are we hearing people talk about? What are people afraid of? What are they looking for? We have really good friends who planted a church and they named it Hope because after listening to many people and praying over the city and the location of their church, our friends realized that their city needed the hope only found in Jesus. And they discovered that need by listening and by observing. The people around you need Jesus too, but why? Are they caught in idolatry, in despair, in fear, in materialism? Are you speaking the language that they speak? Can you put the gospel into words that will resonate with them without confusing them? Can you hold in tension the relatability of Christ and his unique decisive claim on their lives, which no other religion or philosophy has? Those are big questions, and we need to be able to answer them and think about them. The last thing I want to leave you with, I want to close with a wee anecdote from a a somewhat older movie. I say older because I just, I realize now I'm in my mid thirties. I'm not old, but like the children that I work with, they think I'm old. Even the teenagers are starting to think I'm old. So I guess this might be an older movie (laughs) for some of you, but I think this scene really encapsulates the why behind the diversity of cultures in the world. In some ways, we might tend to see the lack of unity as a negative, especially given what happens at the Tower of Babel. But even before that occurs, we have already seen the development of culture with people like Tubal Cain, Jabel, and Jubal mentioned in Genesis 4. So we know that not all of the divergences in culture are bad. But why did they occur? I think the 1990s movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, approaches a helpful answer. It's not complete. I know, okay, yes, that's an old movie now. It's the one starring Kevin Costner, if you're not familiar with it. My husband actually, this is sort of an aside, he always refers to Kevin Costner as Dances with Wolves and never by his real name. And he actually thinks the ver- that version of Robin Hood is pretty laughable because Costner has no English accent. <laughs> That aside, there's this lovely moment in the movie when a young girl approaches the character Azim, who's played by Morgan Freeman, and who, it really must be said, is the best character in the whole movie. He's thoughtful and poetic, intelligent and wise, skilled in many things, and probably the most honorable of of everyone in the movie. Anyways, this wee girl comes up to him and says, why did God paint you? And Azim, Morgan Freeman, laughs and he smiles and he answers her because Allah loves variety. I just, it is the best line. It just rings with such truth and beauty because God loves variety. And so should we. And we should learn from and appreciate the very cultural waters in which we swim and see how they might throw light on the gospel, and also how the gospel answers the needs of those cultures. All right, my friends, it is time for me to leave you and head out um, on some more adventures of unpacking this weekend. Um, If you have any questions, feel free to sing out. Send me an email. You can get in touch through my website. Um, Those of you who are on my newsletter list, I am so sorry I have not gotten that out this month. That is my goal in the next week before the month of July ends and we move into August. It has been a wild season for us. Um, But I love doing this with my family and I also love doing it with you all and hearing from supporters and listeners like you. So feel free to get in touch. God bless.